morning. We are glad y'all are here. Merry Christmas. I think we're 10 days out. Hope that doesn't worry any of y'all. It looks like we're 10 days out from the big day. Um, We are in an Advent series right now, and so uh, we'll be talking about Jesus this morning. I hope it's no surprise to you. Uh, We'll be talking about the coming of Jesus and uh, what it means uh, for many who have been before us and what it means for us and what it means from here until he comes again. And so um, it is very appropriate to wish each other a Merry Christmas because it is Merry because Christ came. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll go to our text. Lord, we come to you this morning humbly, uh, eager for you to be glorified in our time together. Lord, we pray that you would um, guide us as you see fit this morning. Um, I confess that I have trusted you in the preparation of this sermon, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would help me to really trust you in the delivery of it. Um, This time of year, Lord, there's so many um, things about Christmas that are so very familiar to us that um, my fear for myself and for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is that we can sort of overlook things as common that are not common at all, but that are otherworldly and absolutely remarkable. And so I pray that you would help me to communicate that clearly this morning. Lord, before we uh, get to our text this morning, we want to lift up a few other things. We pray for uh, Pastor Mike Harrigan uh, here at Mineral Heights. Um, We pray that as they're gathering this morning, that they are enjoying you and that you're being... um, glorified in that body, that you are being worshiped in spirit and in truth in that body. And I pray that Mike is uh, really enjoying you as a pastor, that he is spending ample time each week uninterrupted in the word, in prayer, in meditation as he prepares to deliver um, a message um, this Christmas season to that body. I pray that they are um, walking in the word and eager to glorify you in all things. Lord, we pray for some in this body who are um, recovering from surgeries. We pray uh, pray for uh, Zach Thomas as he continues to to recover and just pray um, that that they've gotten everything that they need to get and that that he is um, recovering well and that you would take any pain away or discomfort that he has. We pray for Christian Haas as she is continuing to recover this week with a couple little little hiccups this week. We pray that you would uh, continue to heal her and allow her to, uh, to make full uh, recovery. We pray for uh, little Amelia Thornton, um, that you would just continue to watch over her and give her good care as she has had her first of a few heart surgeries. Um, pray for uh, Derek and Casey, that um, you would give them a steadfastness as they spend day after day at the hospital, and that you would uh, just let them see opportunity for, for kingdom work there, and that they would really trust you uh, with Amelia. Uh, we also pray for little Zachariah Way Casey as he uh, also recovers from heart surgery. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that everything has gone well there, that he's already off the ventilator, and uh, that he appears to be a strong little dude who is, who is moving forward and recovering. Um, we're thankful, Lord, that with those kinds of things going on in the body, that we can trust you with them and that we can come to you with them. We thank you, Lord, that you are a kind of God who is accessible, a kind of God who who has made a way for us to come to you even in prayer. So as we explore that this morning in Christ, we pray that you would bless us, encourage us, open our hearts and our minds to understanding, and, uh, and we pray that you'd be glorified in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we'll start. We're going to be in verse 16. 
Colossians 2, we're going to read verses 16 and 17. It says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a Sabbath festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This morning, we're going to be talking about shadow and substance. And this is actually not something that's all that new as far as um, Advent sermons go. Uh, We regularly as Christians are called to anticipate um, his second coming and reflect upon his first coming. And so that's what we're doing this morning. It's it's really nothing new, but what I want y'all to see is this morning you may hear nothing new. You may hear uh, things that you've already known about Christ coming in the form of a baby in the flesh. I want to encourage you to approach these scriptures as worshipers. I want to encourage you to consider that those things that we see so often that seem really common, that we talk about a whole lot this time of year, that they're in fact phenomenal, amazing, changing the entire course of all of our history. So climb into the story, try to, try to consider those things and maybe we allow the excitement or the encouragement in them to, to, uh, to not be as exciting and encouraging because they're so common, because it's a message that we hear so often. But we're going to be talking about shadow and substance. And what I want us to realize is that here we are, we're, we're 2,000 years after the first coming of Christ. And what we have to realize this morning is that the first coming of Christ, Advent means coming, the first coming of Christ was anticipated for thousands of years before that. So that's the part of the story we're going to climb into this morning, is that part of our Christian history where our forefathers in the faith anticipated the first coming of Christ. We already know from this um, text that we just read that there's a, a number of things that serve as shadows. And all of the shadowy things in Scripture work to bring us to this anticipation that is the substance of Christ. And so the things that he mentions already are, you know, the festival, new moon, um, Sabbath, um, other pieces of scripture talk about the priesthood, the Passover, all these things are shadow. And this morning, if you're taking notes, what we're going to be focusing on is the shadow of sinless offspring, the shadowy anticipation that comes with, with the, the desire to see sinless offspring. So I want to give an example before we go back to the text, because I think maybe the example will help us to to view the text rightly. Sometimes you give an example afterwards to make sense of it. I'm hoping it makes sense of it before we get to it. So I shared this last year, um, but our front door in our house, you know, you have like your normal front door and then sometimes you have a glass door. So you leave the, the normal door open and you have a glass door. Well, it's situated in such a way where if someone walks up our front walkway, it casts a shadow of that person into our entryway and into our living room. So Let's say I'm home alone with all four of my children while my wife is out Christmas shopping. They're seven, five, two, and two. When I see the shadow coming up the walkway, I'm filled with a shadowy anticipation of my wife being home. I'm filled with the shadowy anticipation of, oh, she's coming up the walkway. I can see the shadow, and, and I'm excited. I'm probably relieved. 
Um, um, even though she may have only been gone for 10 minutes, there's excitement there. And so she's coming up the walkway. I see the shadow, but what I want us to see is that what's better, the shadow or the substance? You see what I'm saying? The, the shadow, you can't wrap your arms around a shadow. You can't share the details of the day with a shadow. The substance is, is, is what makes, um, what is best there, but, but the shadow causes you to um, have a shadowy anticipation of the substance. So I want you to think about that as we consider this shadowy anticipation of Christ coming to earth. The question I want to start with this morning is when did the anticipation start? Christ coming to earth, looking for this, um, this shadow of sinless offspring, when did that start? When did the anticipation begin for human beings? And I want you to turn to Genesis 3 with me. Turn to Genesis 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 first. Genesis 3, way back at the beginning. So consider and remember the phrase shadowy anticipation as we're looking for the substance of Christ. And in Genesis 3, we ask the question, when did the anticipation start? Look at verses 1 through 13. As I read this, I want you all to know this is our story. If you're, if you're a visitor this morning or um, if you've never heard the story of, of the fall of man and, and how man was redeemed, I want you all to know that this is not a story in a faraway land long, long ago. Th- this is our story. This is what happened to us, and this is where we will find our need for sinless offspring as we celebrate Advent Um, this Christmas season. So this is our story. Let's climb in. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Um, And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked." And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, remember, this is our story. So the first thing they did was get some fig leaves and tried to make loincloths to cover their nakedness. We've talked about this before, but what happens when you take a fig leaf from the vine? The wind blows, and it withers, and it goes away. It's, not, it, it's a foolish way to try to cover your own sin, something so brittle that it could blow away with the wind. So it's not a good way to cover your own sin. That's one of the first things that we did when sin entered is we're, we're trying to do foolish things like cover ourselves and cover our own nakedness and cover our own shame and cover our own mistakes, but we do it in such foolish ways like withering fig leaves. And it goes on, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The foolishness continues in our story because they're hiding from God behind a tree. I'm guessing he can see through trees. He made them. Um, I'm guessing that that wouldn't be an effective hiding spot. He, he, he probably knew where they were. And so this is, a, this is a really sad circumstance because before when they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that meant that they got to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And so things changed. Continues in verse 9, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, her fault, blame game started in the garden. The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And when the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the man blames the woman, the woman blames the devil. No one takes responsibility for what they've done because sin makes us stupid. I don't like my kids to use the word stupid, but in regard to sin, we're okay with it in our house. This is what happens. This is our story so the anticipation starts as we are with Adam and Eve realizing there's a problem. We've done something wrong. With Adam and Eve, we're hiding from God behind trees. With Adam and Eve, we're trying to cover our own shame. With Adam and Eve, we hear his voice and we're trembling. This is our story. But with Adam and Eve, we also hear God's response in verses 14 through 15 that says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Other translations say, he shall crush your head, you shall bruise his... um, you shall bruise his heel. I like the crush word there because it's, it's indicative of what's actually happening there. There's one sinless offspring that will come and conquer death and Satan completely. And the anticipation for that offspring starts right here in Genesis 3. That's when the anticipation starts. It's at this point where God says, there's one who will come after this who will crush your head. As, as those who are, have sinned, we hear that and we're saying, I'm looking for that one. I'm looking for the one who's going to come and crush the head of the enemy. I'm looking for the one who will redeem us. And that's when the shadowy anticipation begins for us. It's in the garden. At this point, we're looking. And the first baby ever is born. God says there's going to be sinless offspring to come. And Eve gets pregnant. No one's ever gotten pregnant before at this point. No one's ever had a baby at this point. Eve is with child. She's the first person to ever feel a child moving around in her womb. And the first child ever born is named Cain. The second child ever born is named Abel. And so with Adam and Eve, we are saying, well, which one's the savior? Is it Cain or is it Abel? We're looking for the offspring that's going to redeem us and crush the head of the serpent. God said there's going to be a baby born, and we're saying, okay, I don't know what that is because I've never seen that, but cool. And then there's a baby born, and then we're saying, okay, oh, now we got two of them. Which one's the savior? Anticipation. And in time, consider the first baby ever born kills the second baby ever born. That's our condition in sin. You ever thought about it like that? No one had ever had a baby before. All they knew was to be looking for sinless offspring. And they have this baby and they have this other baby and there's such excitement because there's such possibilities with these two babies and the first baby ever born kills the second baby ever born. So the anticipation continues because it certainly wasn't met in the first two offspring. 
So we're not just looking for offspring, but what we're looking for is sinless offspring. Cain was not sinless offspring, and Cain killed Abel. So we're not just looking for offspring, but in our shadowy anticipation, we're looking for sinless offspring. So Christian history continues. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Rachel, Joseph, all of our uh, patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith, um, we know that each of them had one thing in common, and the thing they had in common was that they were all sinners. And on their absolute best days, all of them were but types and shadows of the one to come who would finally crush the head of the serpent. So the shadow grows with each generation, which brings us back to the garden in Genesis 3. Obviously, there's a deep anticipation for sinless offspring, but why? There's a question I want us to kind of explore this morning. It's Christmas. We sing about the birth of a baby born in a manger to a virgin. The story's very familiar to all of us, but Have you ever considered, why did God have to come to earth in bodily form? Why did God have to come to earth in bodily form? It's so common to us. The story is so familiar to us, but why? Why bodily form? Why a baby in a manger? Why born of a virgin? God is infinite in power. Sometimes when I ask these questions, I like to gather a few other facts that I can bring into the question. So why, why bodily form? God is infinite in power. God's eternal in wisdom. Our God is immeasurable in knowledge and in ability. He has no limits whatsoever. Was there not another way that he could redeem man from his fallenness? Was there not some other way that God could come up with being completely unlimited in everything having to do with ability and knowledge and insight and wisdom and power, was there not some other way that humanity could be redeemed? And the answer is a resounding no. The answer is a resounding no. To answer this question, kind of have to ask another one. Why couldn't Adam and Eve have just repented? You ever thought about that? I I remember that was one of the first things that I thought when I read, after I'd been a Christian for a while and I was in Bible study, I'm in Sunday school, and we're reading about Adam and Eve and they did something wrong. And then the Bible study teacher tells me, you know, this is a big deal and, and things changed and it was really, really bad. And I just remember thinking, why couldn't they just repent? Why couldn't they just say, God, we won't do that again. We won't eat that fruit ever again. Why couldn't they just turn and then that be the end of it? Why did things get worse after that? Why couldn't they have just repented? And the answer is that corruption entered the flesh through their sin. If you're taking notes, that's a really important point. Corruption entered the flesh through the sin of Adam and Eve. Turn to Romans 5. Turn over to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5, right after the book of Acts, before 1 Corinthians. Corruption has entered the flesh. Romans 5, chapter 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men 
because all sinned. The reason Adam and Eve couldn't have just repented and that was that, the reason that Jesus had to show up in the flesh was that through sin, death entered the flesh. Something has changed. Death entered the flesh. Death came into the world through sin. You've heard it said that um, the only two guarantees in life are death and taxes. It's a very encouraging thing. You might write that down, take that home with you. The only two guarantees in life are death and taxes. For humans, we need to know what death wasn't always a guarantee. When Adam and Eve were walking with God in the cool of the, in the garden in the cool of the day, death wasn't a guarantee at that point. Death entered the world through sin. Through sin, death entered the flesh. So the secular picture of death is that death is natural. It just happens. Everyone dies. That's sort of a secular picture of death. But for us, what I want us to know and, and to never lose sight of ever is death's not natural. Biblically, 1 Corinthians 15 says that death is our last enemy. Death is our last enemy. You, y'all have heard, um, some of y'all have heard Ben explain this before where um, if someone dies who's like 110, someone who's very old, let's say they'd been dying for a while, you knew they were going to die, you still weep at their funeral. You're still filled with feelings that are, there's sadness, there's confusion, there's this feeling like it's not supposed to be like this. Even though the person may have been 110 years old, you're still saying, oh, I feel a sense of loss. I feel like it shouldn't be like this. And that's because death is not natural. It entered the flesh through sin. And 1 Corinthians 15 calls it our last enemy. Think about that at every funeral you go to from here on out. Death is our last enemy. I was trying to think of an example of this, why they couldn't just say, we repent, we turn from it. And there really aren't any great examples. Like every example that I was trying to come up with sort of fell short because the corruption that came with sin and death sort of trumps all other corruption. But just for the sake of those who are visual, go with me to a very lacking example. Then that sets you up to listen. I'm about to give you a really weak example of what I'm talking about. Uh, My brother-in-law works at a place where it's a clean room. So everyone's in the full white suits with masks and they're working with microchips. So it's an environment where um, there's no static, there's no dust, there's no nothing. It's sort of a, this may be a sign of my lack of insight. I always think of Willy Wonka, you know, when they're all dressed in white. If that helps you, your visual, run with it. Um, uh, but uh, he, he's in one of those environments where they're working with these microchips, can't be any static and any dust. Imagine some new employee that doesn't know that environment. There's hundreds of people all dressed in white. It's the cleanest environment imaginable because they're making these, these microchips that can't be contaminated. Imagine a new employee comes walking in, smoking a cigarette, and just kind of goes into the room and, and then kind of looks around and realizes everyone's wearing white. He's like, oh, my bad. And just leaves. Corruption has already happened. He can't just leave. Like you can't just leave the room and then, oh, okay, well, he left. Let's get back to work. No, that room's going to have to be redeemed. Everyone in the room is going to have to be redeemed in some manner. Now, it falls short because you may think, well, yeah, but they could do that, right? It may take a day or two, but they could do that. 
The corruption that came through the flesh, came through sin in the flesh as death, was exponentially worse. They couldn't just say, oh, my bad, I'm done, because corruption had already entered in, and there had already been, um, you can almost picture it like a disease. Something had happened. There had already been um, something that took place that couldn't just be undone through repentance because something happened to humanity. Something happened to everyone who would follow. Something happened that would affect every single baby who would be born after that except one. So God says to Adam, as soon as you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. We've got to hear those words with Adam and Eve. You shall surely die. At one point, death was not a guarantee. But sin changed our nature. Sin changed the nature of mankind. Man was no longer in paradise, but dying outside of it. See how sad that is? How tragic that is? How corrosive the nature of that sin must have been to go from being inside of paradise with God to dying outside of paradise. This is a a dire circumstance, to say the least. The certainness of death brings the fear of death. The certainness of death brings the fear of death. That's why they were hiding from God. They didn't want to die. I don't know if anyone in here has ever struggled with a fear of death. It's debilitating. It's terrifying. If you don't believe that something happens when you die outside of you, there's, it's hopeless. So with the certainness of death came the fear of death. And the reality is, we go back to the promise that God made in the garden, only sinless offspring, only sinless offspring would change this. That's why with every single generation, there's this shadowy anticipation. Is this the one? No. Is this the one? No. Even when God flooded the earth and left only Noah and his family, you could have looked at Noah and said, is he going to be the savior? Is he the one who's going to escape this death that entered the flesh through sin? And within no time at all, Noah is drunk and passed out naked in his tent. That's not our savior. He was the only one left with his family, the only patriarch on earth. And even at that point, Still, they are now anticipating the sinless offspring that would one day come. Thousands of years of this anticipation before Christ's first coming. So what was God to do? That's the question. We're in the garden. We sin against God. Corruption enters the flesh. What is God to do? Would it be right for God to just let us die? Certainly be fair. He would be completely just if he just let us die. If he says, as soon as you eat of that, you shall surely die upon eating of it, God could have said, said it once, I'm not saying it again. You shall surely die. And that could have been it. What's God to do here? Or could he just let us live but then turn from us forever? We have to understand how we were created to see how unfitting those things are. They would, make, they would be perfectly fair because the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. And if you are unrighteous and you do not have Christ and you're suppressing the truth, it is completely fitting and fair that God's wrath would be poured out on you. But here, we're made in the image of God and the likeness of God. Humanity was different from all of the rest of creation and that God put his likeness on us. 
And he treated us with such grace and mercy when we sin. That's the good news of the gospel. Grace is being given what you don't deserve and mercy is not being given what you do deserve. You deserve wrath. And he poured it out on his son. You don't deserve the goodness from God, but in grace, he gives it to you. So should he let us die? Should he turn from us forever? Should he overlook what we did? And what we have to see is at this moment in the garden, at this moment when sin has taken place and death has entered the flesh, at that moment, death now holds dominion over mankind because God is perfectly just. That's something you have to reckon with if Christ will be of any value to you at all. You have to reckon with that if Christ will be of any value to you at all. That death now holds dominion. In the garden, when they sin, death holds dominion over mankind because God is just. He said, if you do this, you will surely die. And at that point, certain death is what they could expect because God is perfectly just. If he would have just swept it under the rug or said, oh, I didn't really think y'all would sin. I didn't really think you would eat from that tree because it was the only one. If he would have said, well, never mind, he wouldn't be just. He would be wishy-washy. He would be capricious like all the other gods that the world has ever had to offer, but he is altogether different. So because he's perfectly just, death now has dominion over mankind. And I want you to know that if, if someone tells you that the good news of Jesus is that if you accept Jesus, he just ignores your sin, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that your sin rested on the shoulders of his sinless offspring, his son. That's the gospel. It's not a matter of just forgetting about it or setting it aside. Every sin has been paid for, but it can only be paid for one way. Athanasius wrote this in 300 AD, so 1700 some odd years ago. It's always, to me, it's exciting to read something that's 1700 years old. So uh, at the very least, be excited about that. Listen to Athanasius and the way he stated it. He said, no repentance could not meet the case. For this purpose then, the incorruptible and the immaterial word of God entered the world. Because we couldn't just repent early in the garden, because mankind had been changed by the corrosive nature of sin and death had entered, because of that, repentance would not do. And that is why the incorruptible and immaterial word of God entered our world. He goes on to say, so that in his death, all might die. When he had fulfilled in his body that for which it was appointed, death was thereafter voided of its power for men. Thus he would make death to disappear from them as utterly as straw from fire. The only way that death disappearing from us is utterly as straw from fire is if we understand the certainty of that death and the hopelessness of that death. We can't appreciate it disappearing and being taken care of in the flesh of Jesus Christ without that. So that is what sinless offspring brought to humanity. That is what sinless offspring brought to humanity. He entered the flesh to redeem the flesh from what we could not redeem it from. Death entered it through sin. So he said, you know what? I will enter it and I will conquer death. And so that means just gospel message, maybe nothing new to a lot of us, but you die in Christ. And when Christ raises from the dead and is resurrected, you too are raised from the dead and resurrected. I have been so troubled this week at why that doesn't seem exciting. 
Like, why could I say that and the room not just erupt? Are you serious? Someone conquered death? He entered the flesh? He took upon himself what we couldn't take upon our own selves, and he accomplished what we couldn't? Oh, my goodness, Merry Christmas. Let's sing. But it's so common to us. Seriously, as a pastor, I've struggled this this week with really not sharing anything new. It's exciting if we understand that there was no other way but for him to enter the flesh, but for him to become a child, but for him to take on the humblest form and be born in a manger. We have these silly nativities that make it look like the stinking manger was like a Tempur-Pedic or something. And it was a harsh environment. There were animals. Like, take your kids to a petting zoo and consider how quickly you want to disinfect them when you're done. It was a harsh environment. He condescended very low. He came in the humblest form, and not only the humblest form, but the purest form. He was born of a virgin. He said, the flesh will not corrupt me in any way. I will come into the flesh, and I will be uncorrupted, and I will conquer for my people what they need to have conquered, namely death. I'm telling you, like, I want to just scream it. It's such good news. It's such good news. If that's all you have to share with someone, you have to share with them the best news that this world has ever seen. But it's so common. We would almost rather watch like a Hallmark Christmas movie and be filled with warm feelings. No, you're not the devil if you watch Hallmark Christmas movies. But there's almost this sense where it's like, ah, Christmas is fun, it's it's light, it's good. What happened when Christ took on the flesh is unimaginable. We couldn't concoct it. We'd just be wallowing in our sin. We would just be dying outside of paradise had Christ not taken on the flesh. All we would have to look forward to is certain death if Christ hadn't taken on the flesh. It's really good news. That's why I want to scream it because that's the only way for me to emphasize things is through volume. Ask my children. Um, This is why Christ took on the bodily form. This is why he humbly came to earth, born of a virgin, taking on the likeness of mankind so that he could achieve what we can never achieve, which is perfection. Not just perfection, but perfection according to God, who is only good all the time. So the word becoming flesh was not just one of many possible ways of redeeming mankind. The word becoming flesh was the only possible way for mankind to be redeemed from the corruption that came as death entered through sin. If you're still at Romans 5, take a look. If you're not there, turn back to Romans 5. In verse 14, we get some really good news. We've talked about the death that entered through Adam. And as we prepare to take the supper right now, we're going to simply talk about how much better Jesus is than Adam. So look at Romans 5, verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. That whole time that death reigned from Adam to Moses was a time where every single child of God anticipated sinless offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. Every single one. So when I say, when Scripture says, 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. That means that every child of God who lived from the point of Adam to the point of Moses anticipated the sinless offspring that would crush the head of the serpent. There's this anticipation. You see him coming up the walkway. You're eager for him to come inside, to redeem, to make clean, to purify, to make new, to give hope. And it goes on to say, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come, or you could say a shadow of the one to come. But the free gift... This is really good news, so just listen to every word of it. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, much more, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The only reason that you can expect life and not certain death is because of the justification that came through Christ's taking on the flesh. It's gospel 101. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Imagine the change, the difference from being over here, corrupted, only able to expect certain death to being made righteous, made righteous by another who's perfectly righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm gonna read that last part again. So that as sin reigned in death, It reigned. It was supreme. Sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The good news this morning as we anticipate the second coming, as we look back and reflect on the first, Jesus Christ took on flesh, and in Christ we have eternal life. It's been said in Corinthians about the resurrection that Um, if that only benefits us in this life, we're we're the most to be pitied. What this should do to us as a people is make us eagerly anticipate his second return while constantly reflecting on his first, knowing that this is not our heavenly dwelling and he has prepared for us a heavenly dwelling that is eternal with him, where he is sinless, made righteous, where he has paid every due that we owe. And in that we have great hope. So I, my desire for this body is that in this Christmas season, our hope is not in temporal things and our hope is not in fleeting things and our hope is not in just concocted thoughts, but that our hope is in this rock solid reality that Jesus Christ came to the earth and took on flesh and conquered the certain death that entered through sin. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna take the supper. I had a brief moment of panic when I finished preaching. It was like 10.58, and I was like, did I leave a page out? Did I forget something? 
Merry Christmas, early Christmas gift, short, shorter thing there. Um, I wanted to share something. I cited 1 Corinthians 15 in the sermon, and given what Brad shared about Lottie Moon and making sure that we, we share this message that is very common to a lot of us, but is completely earth-shattering and, and hope-giving, uh, the church in Corinth was pretty messed up. And so um, Paul, who wrote the letter to the church, to the Colossian church, also wrote one to the Corinthians. And I mentioned it this morning, but I just wanted to share a few things in closing to reiterate actually what Brad said, that in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's the good news. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at the coming, those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, Do not be deceived, Corinthian church. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. It was the shame of the Corinthian church that they knew something that they were not sharing. That they knew good news that they were not telling other people because they were distracted. They were too involved in worldly stuff. It's so easy. It is so easy to get just involved in just worldly, typical, day-to-day stuff. And I want us to kind of hear that, that Paul said to the church. I say this to your shame. There's people who don't know what you know, and you're designed to be able to tell them. So um, it's pretty strong encouragement today to share the gospel, be a part of sharing the gospel. And uh, and as Brad said, if if any of you all have encouragement in that to to ask some questions about how to do that or potentially calling even in your life. Make sure you talk to us and we would love to walk through that with you and pray for you and encourage you uh, biblically.